I, tonight we're going to talk about the promise, and I want to read out of John 13.33, John 13.33, and I'm going to go to 14.4. Many of you, when Jesus talks about this idea of, of going to prepare a place for us, we pick it up in John 14, but you've got to remember the Bible wasn't originally written in chapters and verses. That was added much later to help us reference what we're talking about to, to just to help organize our study and our reading. But originally these were letters and so they didn't have chapters and verses. So sometimes they fall in awkward places and this is one of them. If you really want to pick up the beginning of the conversation, you got to go back to 1333. This is where Jesus says, dear children, I will be with you only a little bit longer. He's at the end of his life. He's in the upper room with the disciples and a few other followers, what's called the last supper. He, he's coming to the end, to his death, to his crucifixion. Dear children, Children, I will be with you only a little longer. As I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now Simon Peter here says, whoa, 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 whoa. Could you just back up a little bit? What is all this talk about you leaving? He says, Lord, Lord, where, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come, Lord? I, I'm ready to die for you. Come on, that's good. And Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. So don't let, see, it's, it's not supposed to stop here. Are you tracking with me? It flows right in. So he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's an incredible promise. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. Don't you love that Jesus doesn't say for everybody except for you, Peter, because you're going to deny me. And don't you have to think that Peter's thinking again, whoa, 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 could you back up a little bit? Did, did you just say that I'm going to deny you before the morning comes? This is one of the most incredible texts in the Bible because it speaks to us what we're calling the promise. It's what Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years. It's, 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 he's, he's getting something ready for us. I want to talk a little bit tonight to start about why the disciples are so upset. If you could just jump right to the timeline. Just give me, go right to the timeline. There you go. The, 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 one of the reasons why the disciples are so troubled by this idea of Jesus' departure is because he just got there. He's only 33 years old, and they have come to believe that he is the Messiah. Now, this is a big deal because the idea of a Messiah really began to take root in Jewish culture during the ministry of Micah and Isaiah. You can see it right there in the middle under kind of 750 and 700. Are there verses in the Bible before Micah 
and Isaiah that speak to the coming of the Messiah? There are, but the idea of it really didn't begin to take root into the heart of the Jewish people because they didn't really have a felt need for a Messiah when they were thriving. But now here, during the ministry of Micah and Isaiah, when the northern kingdom, the northern part of Israel, was falling to the Assyrians, and if you keep moving through the timeline, you see there in 585 B.C., during the ministry of Jeremiah, Daniel, and so forth and so on, when Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered the southern kingdom. And then when you look at the date, how it was really around 1400 B.C., when the Israelites came out of Egypt, in just under a thousand years, the last part of Israel is being taken away back into captivities. They began as slaves and their ending as such as well. Now, now you can see the idea of a Messiah starts to become very real when you're suffering. The, the idea of a Messiah is, is that one day God was going to send a king in the line of David that his kingdom would be without end and that he would rescue his people and they would once again rise to a place of prominence. Christ is not Jesus' last name. If you're in our online church community and you know what Christ means, literally translated, put that in the chat and we will send you a gift card. Come on, let's, let's reward some of our Bible scholars online. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means, anybody here know? The anointed one. Come on, Jamal. I know. You're breaking even for getting Zacchaeus, but not to translate. Yeah, all right. All right. He's even. He's even. So good. Jesus Christ. It, it is a description of who people believed him to be. That gives him his identity. What if you said your first name? I'm going to say mine, but you say yours. Fred, say your first name people who know you, what would they put in the next fill in the blank? Your coworker, your neighbor, your spouse, your children. What, what would be the descriptive word that would come after your first name? What would be the first thing that came to mind? It's sobering, isn't it? Now, let me ask you this. Jesus, fill in the blank, who is he to you? I was tearing up over there during worship, and the, the phrase that came to me was that he is my faithful friend. He is my, he's many things to me, right? But in that moment, that's what I, I felt him say to me, I, I am your faithful friend. you you got to have a fill in the blank for Jesus. Not, not something that you learned, not, 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 not something that someone else told you that he should be, but someone, who is he to you? Jesus, fill in the blank. Micah rolls, Malachi rolls around around 400 B.C. He is the last prophet in the nation of Israel. And then there is 400 years of prophetic silence, 400 years. So when John the Baptist comes on to the scene in the first century, and there early on in the Gospels, we're not going to go there for the sake of time, but in John 1, 19 to 20, 29, and 35 to 37, you can download these notes this week off of our website on our, on our page for all, where we put all of our sermons. The notes are there every week. But here, here's, here's John the Baptist. He's out doing his work in the desert, and there's these throngs of people, and all of a sudden he sees Jesus walk by, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now that might just seem like poetic language to you and me, but to the Jewish people it meant that's the Messiah. He's finally here. 
He has finally come. Every generation in the Jewish world, from the time of Isaiah and Micah, so you're talking around 700 and 750 years, there is this pent-up desire and disappointment because as each generation passed, the Messiah has not yet come. 750 years of longing passed down from generation to generation to generation. For me, I think it built with every generation. And finally, we get to the first century, the generation of John the Baptist and Jesus and all the other players in the Bible that we've come to be familiar with, right? They're the ones who said he has come in our lifetime. So you can imagine when Jesus says to them, hey, I'm out. They're like, no, 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 no. You're, you're supposed to rescue us from the Romans. You're, you're, you're supposed to us, we're supposed to go back to the days of like when it was Solomon. We're, we're going to rule the world, right? And, and we're going to do it with you. you. You can appreciate here in the text when Jesus says, I've got to leave. I've got to go somewhere else to prepare a place. They're thinking, we thought you were coming here to prepare this place for us. They're disappointed. They're confused. They're upset. So when Jesus says, hey, settle down. Don't let your hearts be troubled. He's not just responding to the idea that their friend is leaving. He's responding to centuries of hope and disappointment that they are carrying with them into this dinner. They do not want him to go. So this is my question for you before I move on to my next point. We're going to do this a couple of times tonight. I want it to be personal tonight. How has Jesus disappointed you? How has he disappointed you? I just, just let that linger in a moment of silence. Can we do that? How has Jesus disappointed you? Maybe like the disciples, you had expectations of what being a Christian was going to be like, and it's been different for you. Maybe you have a prayer that you've prayed for a long time, and you feel like Jesus hasn't kept his end of the bargain. He's not answered your prayer or met that need or fulfilled that request. How, how has he disappointed you? And, and my encouragement to you, if you feel disappointment, do not hide that disappointment. Don't be ashamed of that disappointment. One of the things that we love about Peter is he was just out there with what he was feeling with Jesus. And you know why I think that's in there repeatedly? It's not to make fun of Peter. Peter's not relief comedy for the rest of the story. It's in there because it's supposed to model transparency and vulnerability for us in our relationship with him. That you're not hiding stuff. You're just, you're just putting it out there with Jesus. Journaling it might help you. If you've never done that, you should try. It doesn't mean you have to be a journaler for the rest of your life. But maybe if you've got some disappointment, it would help you to just write it down. Just write some things down. It doesn't mean that you're giving into it, right? Don't, don't believe that kind of stuff. That whole, the whole teaching that 
took hold of the church about negative confession for a long time, that's, that's just bunk. We, we, we don't believe in that. you you, you got to get that stuff that's down here, out here, just like Peter did. And my encouragement to you is you, you can find one or two faithful friends that you can share your disappointment with. Disappointment was not meant for us to carry by ourselves. Disappointment and isolation grows. It grows. But when we share it, when we trust it to Jesus, when we trust it to others, it doesn't necessarily mean that the disappointment goes away, but the wound that that disappointment created in your heart can find healing and restoration. Somebody say your. Somebody say you. Now somebody say King James, say ye. I know, see, you don't know nothing about ye. I almost made this point as Jesus an English teacher, and then I caught myself. I was like, wait, the English language wasn't even around when Jesus was doing this stuff. Come on. Yeah, that's called being an American and thinking we're the center of the universe, and I am guilty. But he is a grammarian. How was that, Sabra? I know. Called Sabra for a little consulting on some, some English I was doing a deep dive in this study, and it was fascinating to me in John 14, these first few verses, that Jesus uses a whole bunch of versions of the word you. English is very generic as a language. It is both generic and it is also contextual, meaning that we'll have one word that means a whole bunch of different things, and you've got to understand the context. Greek, in which the original Bible was, was, was written. Now, they weren't speaking Greek when this happened, but John was a firsthand witness. Are you with me? John was there. It's called John because John writes this letter. He writes this gospel account, this good news account of the life of Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit was inspiring John to write it, he writes it in Greek because that was the written language of his day. He, but he's writing it because he wants us to understand. He's translated from the way that he heard it. You with me? And he uses all of these different words for you because that's what Jesus would have done in whatever, whether he was speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, sometimes it was one or the other. He was using different versions of the word you because each one carries a very unique, distinct meaning. This, this idea of genitive case means that it's not generic. It means it's very specific. This is important because Jesus is saying, I'm not talking to humanity right now. That's going to come later. You'll see. What, he, what he's saying to them is, I'm talking to you. It, it's, it's as if I were to come down here and I were to start having a conversation with Jamal in front of all of you, but you were to understand I'm talking to him when I say you. And then sometimes in a setting like this, when I say you, you understand that I'm speaking to everyone individually as if you were the only one in the room. But then there's sometimes I might say something that just means that it's just a broad stroke. You just kind of all fall into the same category together. Jesus here is saying, I want everyone in this room to feel as though you are the only one here. Because it's personal for him. He's not just about ready to die for humanity. He's going to die for people. Everyone, individually. He, he could have used lots of versions of you. But he uses the one that says, I'm talking to you. Your heart be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now he changes it. He uses a different one here. This is the dative case. This means that, dative means that you are the beneficiary, that Jesus' focus is on your best interest. It's about you. You're, you're the one that matters. So when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's saying, I'm doing it for you. I think sometimes we've got this wrong. If I were to throw a party for myself, which would be weird, and then I would invite all of you to come, you would come to the party, but you're coming because you want to be a part of the celebration, but you're coming even though I threw the party for myself. But what happens if we throw a party for Pastor David, and then I invite all of you to come? Now, you're going to come to that maybe with a little bit different of an expectation and a little bit more comfortable because I'm throwing the party, but I'm not throwing it for me. I'm throwing it for him, and I've invited you to come. You understand the difference between those two? Jesus does not say, I'm going to prepare a place for me, and I'm going to let you come. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm doing it for you. I'm going to build it for you. And while I'm there working on it, I'm thinking about you. I can't wait for you to come to be with me. And we're going to be there together forever. It's personal for him. It's so personal. We're going to see that in a minute by the imagery he uses. But the very language that he uses to talk with them is putting them in the center of his focus and his priority. And if I go to prepare a place for you, he does it again. I'm coming again and will take you. Accusative here means that you is for take. Again, going back to specific. He doesn't want them to feel like they just get to go because they're human. It's the idea of like fishing with a net versus a, a rod and a reel and a single bait. Right? When you're fishing with a net, you're just scooping up everything you happen to pass by. Jesus said, I'm not scooping up just everything haphazardly and you might get caught up in the net or not. He said, no, no, I want to take you with me. I want to come get you by the hand and bring you to heaven with me for all eternity. And then he shifts it at the end. Now, your Bible doesn't make this pivot. My Bible doesn't make this pivot, unless you're reading in the King James. Your Bible doesn't say, it just says you, myself, so that where I am there, you also will be. But he doesn't say you here. He uses, this is where the first time he pivots from singular to plural. In fact, if Jesus was Southern right here, he would have said, y'all. I want y'all to be with me where I am. In the King James, the fancy word for that is ye. We understand it to be the plural. Why does he shift at the end from this intense focus on singular to this idea of plural? I think because Jesus understood that there were probably some people in that room that felt undeserving that maybe the people that we don't read about a lot, like Nathaniel or Philip or Simon the Zealot, the, the stories are always about Peter and James and John. Maybe Andrew himself, the brother of Peter, he's not kind of in the inner circle. I think Jesus here is saying, hey, hey, all these yous are for each of you too. You don't, don't think that I'm just talking to them because I'm talking to all of you together. It's corporate and it's personal. He doesn't just lump you in because you're part of humanity. He loves you. And he loves us all. Somebody say this. Somebody say, he sees me. Let's let that sink in for a minute. Say that. Say, he sees me. Say, he sees me. 
Maybe somebody needs to say it one more time. He sees me. Some of you need to carry that phrase with you into your week. Some of you, when you wake up every morning this week, that needs to be the phrase that comes out of your mouth. Don't reach for your phone right away. It'll wait. Just with your first waking breath, would you, would you just take a chance just this week, every day? What would happen in your life if with your first waking breath you said, he sees me? Your life changes when you live with the belief and the reality that Jesus knows who you are. Not because somebody reported you to him. Not because an angel sent a message that, hey, you better watch this one. No, no, no. He sees you because he loves you. He sees you like a new parent wandering into a nursery just to take one more look at this child that was just born before they themselves go back to sleep. You know that feeling? How about a parent that's at the end of their days? I've been through that with my father back in 2014. I I remember just sometimes just lingering, looking at him in the room because I knew he was at the end. I just wanted to see him. You understand what I'm saying? There is a longing that we understand as human beings when we look at, when we want to see them. Jesus feels that way about you. He looks out into this world and he loves to find your face and just pause for a moment and stare at you. It's personal here because the imagery that Jesus uses is very powerful. Every one of these disciples that's in this room, they're probably in their late teens, maybe early young adults. If they were not married, they grew up going to weddings their whole life. Grew up going to weddings their whole life. Now, weddings in Jesus' day were very different than, than, than they are in our day. In Jesus' day, whether or not it was initiated by the the bride and the groom falling in love with each other or whether or not it was an arranged marriage. It did not matter either way. At some point, the groom had the responsibility to go to the bride-to-be's father and ask for her hand in marriage. Now, most of us do this. I remember going to Vanessa's dad and asking for her hand in marriage. But what we don't do in American culture now, which they would have had, what begins as a romance becomes a business transaction. Because then this young man, right, probably a teenager, by himself, with this grown man, he has to negotiate a dowry. He has to negotiate how much he's going to have to pay the father to marry the daughter. Now, you might say, I'm not doing that. But you buy a diamond, and you give it to her. I'm just saying, Claire's not married yet. I think all the money that that young man is going to save up for a diamond, I think he should just give that to me and Vanessa, right? No, no, that's, that was their cultural tradition. You're, don't be thinking you're not doing groom. You're still spending a lot of money. You're buying a ring. They're, 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 see, you understand the similarity? We don't call it a dowry, but there's this expectation that the groom is going to, it's going to cost him something. He negotiates the dowry, then he leaves, and for usually about a year, it usually took on average 12 months, he would go back to his parents' house, 
And he would build an addition onto his home. And then when the addition was done, he would plan the moment where he would go back to his bride's house to bring her to the wedding. The father of the bride is the only one who knew the actual moment in time when he was going to go. And usually he would do it at dusk because when they came back, there would be a torch-lit parade, celebration, processional, all the bridesmaids. When it got close to a year, bridesmaids, they had to be ready. Family had to be ready. They didn't know when he was going to come. The bride had to be ready. Every day, every day at dusk, he could come today. And when he came, it was this huge celebration, and there was this parade, this processional back to his house, and then the wedding ceremony would happen. The honeymoon would happen right there, which is a little bit strange, but that was part of the ceremony. And then a seven-day feast would begin. How many of you had a seven-day wedding reception? You're like, sweet Jesus, I could barely afford one for three hours. Seven days! They celebrated. So when Jesus looks at these disciples and he says, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back so you can be with me. Something began to stir inside of them. Their idea of the Messiah began to grow. Because up until that moment, the Messiah had only ever been a king. A Messiah had only ever been a ruler, a conqueror a victor. And now he's saying, no, 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 no. I'm so much more than that. I'm a husband and I am the lover of your soul. So not only does he say, don't let your hearts be troubled. He says, let me tell you something that's going to soothe your heart. I I know it's not going to change the fact that your disappointment that I'm going away, but I want you to understand why I'm doing it and I'm doing it for you. And I'm going to come back for you like a husband comes back for his bride. And how many of you know that Jesus paid a dowry for us? Come on. Jesus paid a dowry. He did it in just a couple of days. This is the last supper on Thursday night. Friday morning's coming. His betrayal, he pays the dowry for all humanity so we could all become the bride of Christ. He's the lover of our soul. Somebody say, he sees me. Hmm. Have you said yes to Jesus? Because he's proposing to you. Is there a moment in time when you look back over the story of your life and you have this sense of him down on one knee? Don't just see him as a king. See him as your husband. And if you're a guy, just get over it. He wants to be the lover of your soul. For the last 2,000 years, he's been preparing a place for you and for me. Let's watch this video together. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space 
gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's 
healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, behold, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So, love the Bible Project. That's good, isn't it? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. So what's Jesus been doing for the last 2,000 years? He's been building that city for you, for you, for you. Are we living our lives like an expectant bride that our groom, the lover of our soul, could return at any moment for us? Because the kind of celebration and processional that happened 2,000 years ago at a wedding, let me tell you, doesn't even hold a candle to the celebration of all the people of God throughout time and history as we march in one grand procession into the new heaven and the new earth. This is the promise. This is the story of the Bible. We're going to talk next week about why he created us here and delve more into this idea of a comparative experience. There's a reason why he created us outside of heaven before he brought us into heaven. This is all part of God's plan. Adam and Eve did not mess up God's plan. Creation set his plan into motion. But his plan was always to create a new heaven and the new earth. And his plan was always for you and me to be there with him. Stand with me. Father, I pray for people that are here tonight in this, these closing moments of, of this service. This, dare, dare we call it a sacred space. 
a, a, a tabernacle, a temple of sorts. A place where we can know your presence. A place where we can feel like that you really do see us. A safe place to bring our, our disappointments honestly and without reluctance and be raw and vulnerable and transparent with you. A place to reflect on the promise of your coming and us being ready for your return. A space to think about what it could possibly be like to step out of this realm into that with you, the lover of our soul, for all eternity. Let's worship together.